0: The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 30 Medieval Weaponry A good starting point for the study of medieval weaponry is the continent of Europe. Those Germanic kingdoms who inherited the weaponry advanced from the Romans and took us forward into the age of knights and chivalry. However, the advances of European weaponry was thanks to the influence of non-European cultures too. So we must study and compare them too. Ultimately, the age of the night was rendered inefficient by the emergence of a non-European technology called gunpowder. But even though the medieval period is made more interesting by the emergence of gunpowder, there is so much more to talk about than that. The vast array of weaponry from the many different cultures is diverse enough to be more imagination-inspiring than those weapons of the ancient times, yet still simplistic enough to be explained without the need for a deep understanding of physical mechanics. You only need to look at a knight's morning star, a spiked metal ball on a shaft handle, to have a good idea of how to use it and what would happen if you did. It's not always the power of the weapon that won battles in medieval times, but the nature in which it was deployed. As with all periods, no battle was won without good strategy, but the weapon itself may be better understood by looking at it on an individual level. By the classical age, many different societies had realised the value of horses within their forces, the Romans were breeding horses for many different purposes and especially for use within the ranks of their cavalry. During the later years of the Western Roman Empire, the use of heavily armoured cataphracts was becoming favoured. And this would be the origin of the Byzantine cataphracts which they based their army around and the medieval knight on horseback from the romantic medieval age of chivalry. Other societies of this era would still favour the speed of lightly armoured cavalry and this would make for some intriguing strategic battles. However, when it came to close quarters battle or unforeseen raids, all you needed in the medieval period was an effective melee weapon. A weapon that could be held in the hand and used a devastating effect this could be a sword or a spear or a club or a variation of those but the important thing is that the technological ability to construct any of these weapons was widespread so it didn't matter whether you came from a wealthy kingdom or a nomadic tribe you could get your hands on such weapons with relative ease The earliest Vikings would capitalise on this window of opportunity to bludgeon their way across the coasts and rivers of much wealthier kingdoms armed with melee weapons and no hesitance in using them to get what they wanted. The Vikings didn't all just raid without consideration though. They were skilled fighters and when they knew that they may be up against a defence force They would bond together behind a wall of shields to protect themselves. Some of the wealthier Viking forces even wore chainmail coats made from iron for added protection. These Vikings would have very likely worn helmets, but not the horned ones often portrayed in Viking caricatures. Viking helmets would have been simple iron helmets designed for practical purposes, rather than for visual effectiveness. A considerable amount of Viking swords have been discovered suggesting that the sword was their favoured weapon. A combination of effectiveness and ease of production likely lent itself to the popularity of the sword. Vikings also produced hafted weapons such as spears and axes designed for close quarters battle as well. Vikings took great pride in their warrior abilities and some of the weapons found are highly decorated and likely only used for ceremonial use, gifted to the most revered Viking warriors. This ceremonial practice echoes back to the warrior societies of the world of centuries gone by and may have inspired the next generation of warriors to emulate the success of their forefathers. When the Vikings who penetrated the rivers of the Frankish Empire were gifted the coastal lands of Neustria in the 10th century, they would found the territory of the Normans, commonly referred to as Normandy, and their Viking warrior traditions were touched by those battle innovations of the Franks, such as their horsemanship. Norman ironmongers would have produced spurs and stirrups, as well as the swords spear points and axe heads that their Viking ancestors would have created. There is often a misconception that the Anglo-Saxons of England were somewhat backwards in their technological developments compared to their continental neighbors. The reality is that they had spent much of their history embroiled in warfare, if not with foreign enemies such as the Vikings, then with each other. The Anglo-Saxons produced similar swords to their Viking enemies and some owned similar chainmail to the Vikings. We even have ceremonial items such as the Sutton Hoo helmet dating back to the 7th century. So weapon and armor production was at a highly skilled level in both Anglo-Saxon England and Viking Scandinavia long before the Battle of Hastings between the Normans and the Anglo-Saxons in 1066. At the Battle of Hastings, William, Duke of Normandy, had arranged the transport of cavalry, infantry and weapons across the English Channel in order to fight a pitched battle against the Anglo-Saxons in their own territory. Not only did they have to transport the horses, shields and armour too, but also there would have been skilled bowmen. All the types of melee weapons are displayed as in use on the Bayer Tapestry, the embroidery that is the main illustrative source for the battle, including maces, axes and swords. But the Norman bowmen are intriguing, not least of all because of the supposition that the embroidery depicted King Harold II of England being struck in the eye by one of the bowmen's arrows. Knights in Armour We mentioned that the Romans favoured heavily protected horsemen within the ranks of their army legions. These horsemen are called cataphracts and their armour would protect both the horsemen and the horse. They were slower in battle than the lightly armoured horsemen of their enemies but the Romans used them to good effect. The production of a cataphract required wealth partly due to the production of the metal plates. When Western Europeans encountered the Byzantines, they would see that the Byzantines were still utilising cataphracts and this would inspire them to concentrate some effort into developing their own form of heavily armoured horsemen. This was the birth of the medieval knight who would have had to have been a resourceful individual financially and practically to even entertain the idea of becoming a knight. As such, these men became the celebrities of their era, highly revered and celebrated by all classes of people, and they would become the attraction of tournaments where knights would somewhat playfully demonstrate their capabilities for an eager audience. The armour of the knight evolved from the small metal plates of the first millennium cataphracts into the large plate armour that is more familiar as the popular image of a medieval knight. The armoured knight was a formidable opponent. If a lightly armoured horseman attacked the medieval knight with a sword then he would struggle to make any kind of impact so as the armour developed as did the countermeasures. So opponents may fire arrows at the horses in order to unhorse the knight and instead of attacking him with a sword, they could just simply belt the knight on his helmet with a heavy club in order to concuss him so that he could be finished off. So as the armour evolved, countermeasures against it also evolved. Horse armour is referred to as barding and was typically found on the Roman and Byzantine cataphracts. But the Germanic societies of late medieval Europe continued to use barding to protect their horses, which developed into a well-produced item combining leather and steel, which may ultimately prevent the knight from being unhorsed by the enemy specifically targeting the knight's horse. Considerable effort was put into the protection of effective knights at whoever's expense was available. Often the knight would have had to have originated from a noble and wealthy family and go through a school of training to become a trusted individual warrior of the king swearing an oath of fealty and adhering to a chivalrous code of conduct. The intricacy and care taken to produce a knight's armour and weapons was considerable by the late Middle Ages. Ornate lances and swords, often only seen as ceremonial previous to this period, were now becoming more commonplace as weapons produced for actual battle. Innovations such as the Warhammer started becoming popular after the Hundred Years' War, between the kingdoms of England and France during the 14th and 15th centuries. The war hammer was a multi-purpose weapon comprising of a series of protuberances at the end of a long handle. These protuberances may be a blunt hammer, a pointed pick and a spike that resembled a lance's head. The gothic style of armour that developed through this period was an intricately created series of stylish metal plates that would cover a chainmail suit and would be held together with hinges and fastened with buckles. It must have taken some time, even just to put it all together and wear it. The bassinet helmets would have had incorporated visors that could be brought across the face, and fastened to the helmet itself by hinges. With the conical visors being popular around Northern Italy. Bowmen. The evolution of bowmen had to move with the times with the advent of better armor making the standard bow and arrow somewhat useless and a waste of energy and resources. The bow and arrows needed to be reinvented to enable heavier arrows to be shot at greater speed in order to cause genuine problems for armour-wearing enemies. With the invention of heavier equipment, this would hinder the mobility of the archers and so the production of full-length shields was necessary to provide shelter while the archer would prepare for his next attack on the enemy. All infantry, whether they be bowmen or not, would have likely carried daggers on their person so that they could switch to close quarters defence of themselves personally. The more frequent use of the more powerful but less rapid crossbow started to be used against the evolving medieval armour. The power of the impact was now more important than the speed of it. The robust and compact crossbow would take a greater amount of muscular strength to operate and it became apparent that an even greater amount of potential energy could be put behind a crossbow bolt if a mechanism such as a kranikin could be used as a winding gear for pulling the bolt back into a position where it could be released with far more speed than with just bare human arm strength alone. The biggest drawback was that it would take too long to operate. So it appears that the cranking method of crossbow bolt firing became more suited to hunting. There became more value in increasing the distance of the range of a bowman by actually creating larger bows as opposed to smaller and more powerful bows like the crossbow. The larger longbows would generate more power and enable arrows to be shot over longer distance, with the arrows being fletched at their base with feathers to enable them to maintain a straighter trajectory during their flight. The barbs of arrowheads were widened to inflict more body tissue damage to the victim and to make it impossible to remove the arrow without causing considerably more body tissue damage and considerable blood loss as a consequence. Siege Warfare So we can see that there was a relationship between the evolution of armour and the evolution of archery during the medieval period. We can also say the same for the evolution of siege warfare and the evolution of fortification. Although we often hear of the Norman invasion bringing the innovation of the stone castle to the British Isles as a method of striking fear into the population, it was fundamentally a place of safe keeping for important people and items. But it was also a place where an army unit could be garrisoned. So in order to take a kingdom or a territory such as England you would need to take its castles, and in order to take a castle, you would even need to storm it or besiege it. Generally, stone fortification had been around for many centuries, but empires such as the Byzantines would improve stone fortification to a point where weapons such as the mangonel slinging device were becoming less and less effective. The mangonel was a device that would be a device commonplace in ancient China that would be a large-scale wooden slingshot where objects would be propelled using manpower. Similar devices had existed in Europe until the introduction of mangonels but these devices relied on torsion so they would be propelled in a similar physical manner to the way that a bow fires an arrow using physical tension. The mangonel would be favoured by many societies in Europe over torsion engines such as the onagers or scorpions. But over time, the mangonel started becoming less and less effective over the improving stone fortifications, especially the emerging cultures of stone castle builders. This ushered in a creation of the medieval counterweight trebuchets that are often seen as the last great high-impact siege engines used for catapulting heavy objects towards enemies before the advent of gunpowder. So had to evolve the construction of the medieval castle to defend against the improving trebuchet technology. During the 11th century and around the time of the Norman invasion of England, The Mott and Bailey type of castle was popular. The Mott and Bailey castle was a quickly erected earthwork keep where a mound called a Mott was created for improved local landscape viewing. On top of the mound a wooden donjon was built which was a small building created for storage, shelter and housing of military personnel and weapons. The top of the mound would often be protected by wooden palisades which were wooden spikes designed to prevent entry comparable to modern barbed wire. The motte would be surrounded by a ditch and then the whole thing would be protected by a constructed wall called a bailey which may have a waterfield ditch built in front of it. Any wooden constructions were susceptible to attack and destruction with incendiary weapons which essentially created fires so stone buildings were favoured over wooden ones. Mott and Bailey castles were not very advanced and somewhat vulnerable to attack and sieges. If it was difficult to get in then it was also difficult to get out so it became necessary ...for these early medieval castles to not only be built from stone... ...but to be large enough to keep livestock... ...so that the besieged castle could hold out for longer. This meant that the Bailey Wall could be built to a higher standard in height... ...and width in order to offer defence to the entire site. So the donjon on top of the motte was no longer required for military purposes and there was no need to even create the motte in the first place. The earthwork motte mound was replaced by a larger earthwork ditch, and this ditch took the name of the motte and became the more familiar moat, which we recognise as the water-filled earthwork now built outside the outer wall. The donjon was now at ground level and eventually was constructed as an underground chamber and so the more familiar dungeon was the result. So the name didn't really alter although the purpose and the altitude of the building did. With the construction of large outer walls came the opportunity to carve small slits from which archers could attack the enemy while remaining out of sight from attacking archers. The attackers would use trebuchets to launch large projectiles towards the castle walls but also they would use battering rams which had to be hidden under a portable composite wood and hide roof designed to protect against bowman attacks from the castle. This kind of portable roof, often called a cat, would also protect miners attempting to undermine or hammer at the castle walls. Other siege devices would include the siege tower, which was wheeled towards the castle, allowing attackers the height to fire arrows over the outer walls, and something that is a very ancient idea with siege towers being known to exist up to 2,000 years before the medieval period. The increasing impact of the trebuchets following their technological advancements that we mentioned earlier meant that the castle builders would begin to favour circular outer towers whose shape was proven to be more effective at absorbing the impact of a large trebuchet flung projectile. And so we see that familiar circular tower shape that is very well illustrated at castles such as Bodium Castle built in the English county of East Sussex in the 14th century. The combination of technologies of the crossbow and the siege engine was brought together in the form of the medieval ballistas which were based on classical world devices but were still being used to fire bolts at enemy soldiers well into the medieval period. These crossbows were mounted onto wooden vehicles and so would not have had to have been carried or operated by human muscle power alone. Gunpowder When I was asked to write this episode by the History of the World podcast Illuminati member Eric G. Young, I was asked to attempt to avoid the subject of gunpowder. To a degree, this was easy due to the fact that there is so much to talk about in relation to the diversity of medieval weaponry and that medieval weaponry in itself was the peak of the development of many weapons whose concepts had been created in the ancient world of highly populated kingdoms and city-states. In a similar manner to the way that Byzantine and Muslim world alchemists had developed incendiary weapons that can be demonstrated well with the naphtha-based Greek fire, Chinese alchemists were also developing knowledge of specific nitrated salts, which are often collectively referred to as saltpeter. When these salts were mixed with sulphur and charcoal, there could be explosive results. Where Greek fire was a fluid, the saltpeter mixture was a powder. It would only be a matter of time before Chinese armies would start applying this power to their projectile weapons, but initially they were an additional quality to an already capable array of weapons, so it didn't have a revolutionary impact at all. It wasn't until the gunpowder was used more to create explosions that acted as a propellant that the psychological threat of a gunpowder-based bombardment such as cannon fire would be enough to cause a fortified castle or city to surrender. By the 15th century, cannons and guns were an essential part of the armoury of the greatest global kingdoms and empires. The Middle East Discussions about medieval weaponry can often become somewhat Eurocentric, as can be the case for many subjects. So it will be very important for us to discuss the similarities and differences of the military cultures of the rest of the world when compared to what we have already looked at during this episode. The Middle East during the medieval period tended to be the home of those cultures who linked European cultures to Asian cultures and vice versa. So we are generally talking about Arabs, Turks, Persians and eventually Mongols. Turks and Mongols followed the migration routes of steppe cultures before them such as the Kushan and the Huns. They would all cross the Kazakh steppe Westwards until either migrating southwards into the lands of the Persian empires or further westwards into the lands of the Europeans. The Turks would come to dominate areas south of the Kazakh steppe and the Pontic Caspian steppe and this would bring them in touch with the Arabs who would utilise their manpower as mercenary warriors bringing numbers of their societies into their slave class and converting large numbers of them to Islam. Much of the lands of the former Sasanian Persian Empire came under the rule of Arab and Turkic dynasties and this meant that many of the Persian populations who still lived on these lands were converted to Islam as well. Meaning that there was an emerging religious identity to both Europe and the Middle East with Europeans being predominantly Christian and Middle Easterners being predominantly Muslim. This cultural distinction coupled with the cynical attitude of the Christian Church of Rome towards the Christian culture of Constantinople led to the Roman Catholic Church instigating a type of holy war against the Muslims of the Middle East that give us the stories of many Christian crusades. So this would include warriors of Arab, Turkic and Persian descent. The Middle Eastern cultures benefited from many forms of advancement due to the Arab expansion creating a wealth of knowledge. To explain further, the Arab acquisition of Egypt came with all of the naval expertise and resource of the Egyptians and the Arab employment of Turkic peoples came with all the advantages of cavalry expertise of steppe cultures. With the conquest of the Sasanian Persians came all of the craftsmanship of weapons such as swords and lances as well as the technological knowledge of siege engines and equipment. So this would enable Islamic cultures to develop a strong scientific culture that was equal and arguably better than those of their European neighbours. So mainly the warriors of the medieval Islamic world had similar technology to the Europeans. Many swords were manufactured by both Christians and Muslims during the period of the Crusades and in some cases Muslim nations would favour the manufacture of curved swords for their light cavalry which was more typically used by armies with links to step horsemen. This is why we often see in depictions of Saracens, the Europeans name for Islamic warriors, the inclusion of a curved sword. Due to its notable characteristic when compared to European swords, Islamic warriors would also wear chain mail and helmets which would often have pointed tops, which was a notable characteristic when compared to European helmets. The Far East The light infantry skills of the steppe cultures would be incorporated into the Islamic armies of the Middle East who could develop swordsmen, lancers and archers on horseback. But this would also benefit the Chinese cultures at the eastern end of the Eurasian steppe. Chinese weapon development was in absolutely no way inferior to their Eurasian contemporaries and this was because warfare was as commonplace in China as much as it was in Europe and in the Middle East. The problem for the Chinese was that the peoples who they would be learning their cavalry expertise from were not being integrated into their society. This would become very apparent in the case of the rise of the Mongols. Often all that was needed was an effective war general such as Chinggis Khan or Timur to lead the steppe armies and their effectiveness would become known. Where the Chinese would have a greater edge would be with their naval capabilities which is why the Song in the south of China were able to hold out against the Mongol invasion at least until the Mongols were able to advance their own naval technology to be on a par with their Chinese neighbours. This is when Kublai Khan, the Emperor of the Mongols became the Emperor of China and with his naval power would look beyond the sea to the islands of Japan. Japan's warrior culture was amazing in itself. Essentially, Japan had developed into a feudal society with landholders existing under an emperor. The emperor employed shoguns to manage the country on his behalf and the landholders, who were referred to as the daimyo, would be accountable to the emperor's shoguns. The warrior class of the emperor whose responsibilities were to protect the feudal integrity of the nation were the samurai, whose identity would eventually become more significant on a political scale. When the Mongols invaded Japan, both the Mongol warriors and the Japanese samurai would be wearing armour which would utilise large amounts of leather alongside iron which would give their armour a much more distinctive look when compared to those armours of Europe and the Middle East. Both nations would have similar technologies in that they developed effective metal daggers and blunt weapons for specialisation in close quarters combat. Both cultures would have mounted archers within their armies and some mounted warriors would also carry swords. One notable difference between the two armies was the Mongol use of the Chinese gunpowder technology to create thundercrash bombs. The thundercrash bombs could be described as early hand grenades that were created by filling an iron ball with gunpowder and lighting an attached fuse before propelling it against the enemy. This notion of an incendiary grenade projectile has also been developed in the Byzantine Empire when the Byzantines were catapulting small glass vessels containing Greek fire at their enemies. Although the Mongols pillaged from the Japanese, the Japanese ultimately resisted their invasion. The Americas Of course, the pre-Columbian Americans were culturally detached from Eurasia and the whole culture of warfare developed in a completely different manner. Populations were generally smaller and scattered with considerably less density and so battles would take place on a smaller scale and be much more compact affairs. The typical long-range weapons were slingshots and arrows. Warriors were generally much better prepared for close quarters contact. Metallurgy was not a widespread technology in the Americas, so weapons were more commonly made from flint, obsidian, or wood. Warriors were revered in the Americas in a similar fashion to those in the Old World. A lot of the pre Columbian American cultures are somewhat shrouded in mystery due to the lack of written evidence to guide us with our understanding. But excavated weapons give more clues and the preservation of items by migrant Europeans following the medieval period, such as highly decorated Aztec shields made from leather, bamboo and cotton, demonstrate that there was a spiritual attitude towards the act of warfare and the spilling of blood so much so that it can be difficult to tell whether the weapons and artefacts discovered were created for serious warfare or for ceremonial warfare. In South America, bronze knives called tumi dating to the Sican and Mochi cultures of Peru were found with very ornate gold depictions of their mythical lord. These items look like they must have been created for ceremonial purposes. So, we can feel somewhat confident that the peoples of the Americas would have been creating sharp or blunt instruments for close quarters combat, as demonstrated by the excavation and preservation of clubs, knives, and spears from pre Columbian times. We can also have an idea that long range attacks would have been made using handheld slings and catapults for solid objects and bows and atlatls for the projection of darts and arrows. The arrival of the Europeans in the Americas heralded the introduction of new technologies such as durable metal weapons, cavalry and gunpowder which would overwhelm the Americans and change the nature of the continent very rapidly and irreversibly. The medieval world as demonstrated by its weaponry was an extension of the ancient and classical world where armies would trade with, plunder from and in some cases conquer their next door neighbours. With the advent of the gunpowder age nations could terrorise and conquer societies like never before and even overwhelm societies living far away as small numbers of people could control larger numbers with advanced weapon technology. European nations would take advantage of their ability to take the resources of the Americas and utilise them to explore and colonise the far-off lands of the entire globe and the transition of the ancient world into the modern world was now taking place. That concludes this week's episode on medieval weaponry, commissioned by History of the World podcast Illuminati member, Eric G. Young. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again next week. For more History of the World Podcast. Until then, be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the History of the World website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.